0: All right, Frack family, well, we come now to the final chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, We will conclude our study of this book, Lord willing, next week. Today we will look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, so let me read those verses for you. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, "'Who are you?' knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "'Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these?' He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. So read the words of the living God. So in any great work fiction especially, think of uh, great books or movie series, there is often the great climactic event when you're just exhausted, the the big thing has happened, and and it's for all intents and purposes the movie is done or the book is done, but then there are a few resolutions that need to take place, a few uh, loose ends to tie up. Well. In chapter 20 of John's Gospel, we really had the big deal. We have the resurrection of Jesus, and in last week's text, John kind of wraps up the book. He gives the purpose statement for writing it. He explains why he wrote the book, and it, it seems like we're done. But chapter 21 brings resolution to one very important issue, and that has to do with the status of Peter. So that's what we find here in chapter 21. So the setup is uh, the, the disciples have gone back to Galilee. We know from other Gospels that Jesus had told them to go back to Galilee. So they obeyed. They went back to Galilee. And remember, for Peter and for some of the other disciples, their vocation was fishing. They were fishermen. This was this is what they did for a living. And they still needed to eat and it's what they knew to do. So they're waiting and they didn't know how long they'd be waiting for Jesus to appear again. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples jumped in the boat with him and out they went. And they fished all night long, apparently, and they didn't catch a thing. Uh, Now, I'm not a professional fisherman, and neither was my dad, but I've been on several fishing trips with my dad where we were out pretty much all day and all night and caught nothing. It's a pretty discouraging time. So they're out there catching nothing, and then they hear a voice from the shoreline. This man says, children, or uh, this could be a term that means kind of a more um, casual guys or, or gents or something like that you don't have any fish, do you? They said, no, not really thinking anything of it. And the man says, well, put your nets out on the other side and you'll catch something. What's kind of interesting is they did it. I mean, again, these are professional fishermen. They know what they're doing. But, you know, when you're desperate (laughs) and exhausted and hungry, you'll try anything. So they put the, the nets out on the other side And there were so many fish in the net, they couldn't pull the net back in the boat. That's a lot of fish. Remember, these are professional fishermen. They couldn't get it back in. And of course, John is the first one to quickly uh, realize that's Jesus. And of course, Peter is the first one to react to finding out it's Jesus. He throws on his outer garment, and he jumps in the water and swims— what appears to be 100 yards, to Jesus. The rest of them have to come back in the boat, and they got to drag the net of fish back to shore. But Peter cannot wait, and that's what we've seen in Peter. He is always immediate to action. And here again, he leaps out of the boat, swims as fast as he can. He wants to be with Jesus. So he goes up on the shore, and the rest of the guys finally show up with him. And uh, Jesus there uh, is uh, preparing a meal for them. And he says, go get the other fish that you caught. And you notice it's Peter who drags the net by himself. Now, the other guys couldn't even get in the boat, but he was able to pull it in ashore by himself. This guy was a strong man. Big, big, tough kind of guy. And so they eat together. The setting for this exchange between Jesus and Peter, I'm convinced is no accident. Here we have Jesus on the shore with a charcoal fire as he's cooking. We've already seen a charcoal fire in this book. It was in that moment when Jesus was having the the most perilous event in his life as the soldiers have come and arrested him and John and Peter slip into the courtyard before the trial and Peter is warming himself and John tells us He's warming himself by a charcoal fire, and Peter is asked three questions. Hey, you, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And Peter's response, yes, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. No, that wasn't his response, was it? I don't know the man. No, I'm not his disciple. He's asked again, aren't you one of his friends? Nope don't know him a third time he's asked a third time Peter denies knowing Jesus right there at the charcoal fire and Luke tells us that at that moment the rooster crowed and Jesus turned and met Peter eye to eye now we remember that Jesus had told Peter you will betray me three times before the rooster crows And Peter denied it. And then, of course, he did deny him, and Jesus looked at him at that moment. So Jesus sets up a charcoal fire, and he has three questions for Peter. His first question, Peter, do you love me? His second question, Peter, do you love me? His third question, Peter, do you love me? I don't think it takes uh, a great exegetical ability and great scholarly ability to understand why Jesus asked him three times, one for each of the denials. Now, Peter gets frustrated at this. He's, he's, He's grieved. Imagine the shame that Peter has been living with since that happened. And he rushes to Jesus here, and the first thing Jesus wants to know is, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Jesus says to Peter on all three occasions in response, when Peter Peter says, Of course I do. You know I do. You know all things. You know I love you. Jesus says, Take care of my people. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. This is the very epitome of love and forgiveness. This is what love looks like. Jesus forgiving his betrayer. Jesus forgiving the one who had turned his back on him just a short time ago. And now says, I trust you and I'm entrusting to you care of my people. That's love that's forgiveness the question we have to ask ourselves is what does our love look like do we have that kind of love and forgiveness this is what God has done for us he entrusted Peter with service he didn't he, he, he didn't reject him he didn't shun him now there's there's certainly a veiled rebuke in the threefold questioning there's a There's something to that, but it was not intended to rip Peter down. It was intended to say to him, I'm giving you another chance, and I trust you with my people. In 1 Corinthians 13, the so-called love chapter, Paul there tells us that love keeps no record of wrongdoing. He's using an accounting term, right? We uh, we get money in every month, and we spend money. We have our income and our expenses, and we keep records of those things. And at the end of the month, we want them to balance. We set aside money for food and for gas and for savings and all those things, and we spend that money based on the income that's coming in, and we want to make sure at the end, all things even out. That's what accountants should do. That's what accounting should do. But love doesn't do that. Love does not keep track of all the offenses that someone has committed against us. Jesus, of all people, had great reason to disown Peter, to reject Peter, to say, you have proven yourself you're unworthy to be my friend, much less be a leader in my church. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't keep a record of those wrongs. He forgave him, and he put him to work. That same chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love hopes all things, love believes all things, love endures all things. It, it It's a way of saying love assumes the best of people. You look at someone who seems to be a mess, and you think, out of love, but I believe they can be better. I believe they can change. I believe, I'm convinced, I'm hoping I'm enduring their failures with the attitude that they can become somebody that is pleasing to the Lord and better than they are now. Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, knew this very well. Like Peter, Paul had betrayed God. Now, it wasn't a face-to-face betrayal with Jesus himself, Paul was one of those guys, one of those Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He was convinced that Jesus was a blasphemer and a fraud. And and he was happy to see Jesus put on the cross. And he did everything in his power to snuff out this Christian movement, this Jesus movement. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul later on would write to Timothy and he would say these words. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy." so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is saying here is, if I, who persecuted the church and tried to destroy the church, the people of Jesus, if if I can be forgiven and entrusted with ministry, then anybody can. He says that's part of the reason God saved me and put me into ministry, was to give hope to everybody else that no matter what your sins are, by the grace and mercy of God, you can repent, you can change, and you can be useful. None of us have committed such sins that render us useless in God's kingdom. And Paul attributes this all to the grace and the mercy and the love. Of God himself. So it begs the question for all of us, do we love like this? Do we show forgiveness to those who have wronged us? The people in our households, maybe, that we say we love. Other friends and neighbors whom we say we love. If we harbor bitterness, If we keep a record of wrongs, if we treat them as though they have betrayed us and they're worth nothing and we reject them, that's not love. That's not love. That's not the kind of love that God has. It's not the kind of love that Jesus has. It's not the kind of love that we have received from Christ. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So you got to ask yourself, Right now, ask yourself, is there anybody, again, in in your household, anybody in your circle of influence, in your friends, your families, or anybody who you're resentful toward, anyone whom you have that account, you could list off things they've done against you. You could rattle them off like this. In your mind, you have the column that says they've done this and this and this, and therefore... I'm not going to be kind, therefore I'm going to treat them poorly. I'm going to speak poorly, in my own mind at least, if not with my mouth. To the extent that any of us have that list, we are not showing the kind of love that Christ has shown us. What would happen to Peter if Jesus kept a record of wrongs? What would happen to you? What would happen to me? If jesus had a list and he said i'm going to keep you accountable for all of your sins and i'm going to treat you according to your offenses against me on another occasion jesus said very strongly we can't expect the father to forgive us if we refuse to forgive others this is what love does love sees others through the eyes of faith in what they can become it's not naive, it's not gullibility, it's not being blind to the to the, the, the state of the person and, and their failures. It's believing and loving and hoping for the best in them and trusting if they're Christians and the spirit of God is working in them, that that spirit will transform them, he will change them. So again, I ask, is there anybody in your life whom you are believing the worst of whom you, you don't believe good things about them, you don't have hope for them, you're not enduring them, but you're holding a grudge and bitterness and a record. If we get there, we cannot, in alignment with truth anyway, we cannot say we love them. We can say the words we love them, but we don't actually love them if we're doing those things and in our hearts harboring those things. Peter here, though he's grieved, he knows he deserves this threefold questioning. And he will live the rest of his life showing Jesus that he truly does love him. And next week we'll look at that final section where Jesus tells Peter what it's going to look like for him to show love. Love by definition Is shown, not merely spoken. Here Jesus says, Do you love me? Three times Peter says, Yes, I love you, and Jesus doesn't say, Oh good, I'm so glad to hear you say it. Because those words come so easily off of our lips. I love you. It's it's so easy to say. But biblically speaking, love is not about words. Love is not about mere sentiment. Uh, Love is not about a mere feeling. Uh, Yes, it has to come from the heart in the Bible, but the heart in biblical categories is, is as much about will as it is what we call affections or emotions. Love is choosing to want the best for someone and then acting accordingly. That's how the Bible describes love. It's, I want you to succeed. I want you to be blessed, and I'm going to act toward that end, which is why Jesus says to Peter, if you love me, Peter, prove it by your actions. Take care of my people. Feed my lambs and my sheep. I should highlight one thing before we move on to the next section, Uh, You may have a footnote or two in your Bibles, and if you've heard people talk about the different words in the scripture for love, sometimes scholars make a big deal about Jesus asking, do you agape me? And Peter responds with, I phileo you. Now, if you're not familiar with any of this, then just hang on. We'll we'll be done in a second here. Um, But there has been uh, this, this understanding that agape is the great, godlike, selfless love, and phileo is a different category. The problem is that's a really difficult case to make biblically. These words are used interchangeably. As we see right here, they are used interchangeably. And in other places, they're used interchangeably. So don't put in your mind that Jesus is asking about one kind of love and Peter's at, re- responding with a different kind of love. There's a great deal of overlap. Uh, We have different words in our day. Uh, You know, one, if I ask you a question or I inquire of you, those mean the same thing, even if I use different words. He used different, different words for lambs and sheep here too. He's not making a fine distinction. He's just using different vocabulary. The point is Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I love you. Then Jesus says, show me by what you do. And in particular, I want you to love my people and care for them and feed them. So the obvious application for all of us is, do we understand God's love and his forgiveness and his forbearance? And are we showing that kind of love to others? If we're not, if we're simply saying we love people in order to make ourselves feel better or to make our bitterness and hatred seem less severe, it's not biblical love. It's not godly love. Godly love acts itself out. So that's the first thing we get from this passage. The second thing is, not only have we received this same love from Jesus in Christ, but it's ongoing. Not only does Jesus forgive us, he wants his people fed. He sends Peter out to take care of his sheep. They're the sheep of Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, feed your sheep. He says, feed my sheep. Jesus wants us to feast, and he wants us to feast on good food. In fact, we are not to just drink milk, as the Bible goes on to say. We are to eat meat. I love that imagery in Hebrews. We are to eat solid food. We're to eat grown-up food. At Frac, we have 13 elders, and it is our privilege and our responsibility to provide the meal. We don't actually make the food. We present the food. It's, it's Jesus' food. He's the one that feeds you. But, but we come and we bring it. We're the, we're the waiters. We're the servers. And it's a great privilege for us to do that. I, I, I love my job. I love what I do. It is a great privilege that the Lord has called me to be the waiter, to be the server, and bring the food to you. And I love studying, and I love preaching, and I, I would love to see your face. And I can't wait to the time when we can be together. It's coming. It's soon. But I love knowing that that you're going to be able to hear the preaching and teaching of the Word uh, through technology. I love to do that. And we as elders have to take this seriously. It's a high calling. James tells us not many of you should become teachers because you're going to be held to a stricter judgment. We need to make sure the food that we are providing is always the food of Christ and His word and not man's writings and not man's concerns and, and not made-up stuff uh, and, and you know not too much uh, cake and ice cream, stuff that makes everybody fat, but good solid food. But we all have a responsibility to eat. Jesus has provided a meal. I can bring it to you, I can set the table, I can invite you in and pull out your chair and help you scoot up and put a fork and a knife and a spoon there in front of you, but I can't make you eat. And if Jesus provides this great meal and we don't eat, we're gonna starve, we're gonna become weak. And who knows? He might say, fine, I'll stop giving you so much good food and I'll give it to some people that will eat it. So what I mean is not just sitting and listening to this sermon for 30 minutes, check the box I ate, you can listen to this entire thing and not eat eat any of it. You can read the Bible, four, five, six, ten chapters a day, and never eat. It has to be taken in and digested. That means we have to think and we have to pray we have to ponder and engage our mind and then we have to act. Again, we love the Lord, we say. We have to show it by applying what he tells us to do. So, If we hear this, that God's forgiveness is abundant, that he keeps no record of wrongs, and yet we keep living, feeling guilty as though he's against us, we haven't eaten. The meal's right there, but we haven't partaken of it. If we listen to this sermon, read this passage and continue to harbor resentment and bitterness toward others. We haven't eaten. We've looked at the meal. We've said, yeah, that looks like good food. We may even tell ourselves we've eaten because we sat at the table. And cognitive dissonance sets in and we start playing with games in our head, trying to suppress what we know is true. But if we eat That means we're digesting it, and it's going to come out in our lives. We're actually going to love others. We're going to destroy the record of wrongs. We're going to believe all things, hope all things, endure all things toward others. And we're going to serve as he's called each one of us. Now We're not all to be teachers in the formal sense. We're not all like Peter, elders in the church. But we are to love and serve others, including those in our household, those in our, in our church body, and love our neighbors. And we must do that because we have been loved so greatly and so deeply by Christ. So, Frack family, I am, I am pleading with you. Don't just sit at the table this morning. Eat. Feast on the food Christ has provided and apply it to your lives. Take some time to ask the Lord to reveal who you say you love, but your actions show otherwise. And repent. God will forgive you for that sin. Be reconciled to whomever you need to be reconciled and love them and hope for them and believe for them and endure for them and show them the kind of forgiveness that Christ has shown to you. Let's pray. Father, I ask simply that you would give us as Christians the kind of love and forgiveness that Christ himself showed to Peter. And may we not love in word only, but may we love in word and deed, because that's what you have done in sending your son to the cross for our sin and raising him from the dead.